Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. You're about to listen to a historical episode of Dark Poutine. After episode 149, you will find Scott is no longer with the show. In an effort to maintain continuity and offer listeners as many episodes as possible, we are leaving the episodes in which he co-hosted intact. Thank you. Welcome to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, creator and host. With me as usual is my good friend and co-host Scott Hemingway. Say hello, Scott. Hi. Wow. The, t- the enthusiasm is just... I was trying to think of a new witty oh, shit. Uh, thing to say. As you could tell, it, it did not go well. Yeah, you and witty don't go along. <laughs> well, shut your face. <laughs> the views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Listener discretion is strongly advised. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're two ordinary Canadians chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some Dark Poutine. <coughs> Welcome back, folks. This is episode 106 and our first episode of the new year and a new decade. This is true. It's the 20s. We can finally refer to the decade that we're in. As the 20s. As as the decade that we're in. I've always wanted to. Yeah. Well, I was born in the 60s and lived through all the rest of those. And then there was the 2000s. It kind of doesn't, yeah, the aughts. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't flow. It doesn't. It doesn't flow. 20s, though. Oh. Yeah. So it's the roaring 20s. And it's starting off with a bang, but. Yeah. Anyway. (laughs) Well, is that a (laughs) political news related? No, no. Uh, Before we begin, we want to talk a little bit about reactions that we had to our last (laughs) episode. You were trolled. That's right. <laughs> I mean, I mean, we we did it. We do it every year. Yes, we did Santa Claus as though he were real. Yep, and a thief, a serial burglar. Right, and then we did the Grinch as though he lived in Squamish. Yes, British Columbia, or also not real on a hill. Yep. And then this year we decided we'd cover Die Hard. Yeah, which is brilliant. 
It was and, fun. It was fun writing it, if you, and watching, rewatching the movie multiple times. We've been clear with all of the other Christmas episodes that we keep them light. Yeah. They're about, you know, we, it, it, and it's, we don't, we play it straight as arrows yes. and we don't break the Character. fourth wall yeah. during the entire episode. Yeah. And so we just followed through with tradition. Right. And s some of you may not have known the movie. Which is fine. It's totally fine. Which is fine. Totally fine. We don't expect everybody to have watched a movie that was released in 1988 because God, uh, some, of the, some of you folks weren't even born then. Yeah. But it is a big part of pop culture. It is. And there's arguments whether or not it is an actual Christmas movie. The writer himself says it is, yes, it is a Christmas and, movie. I mean, that's all you need. Right. And But Bruce Willis says, no, it's a Bruce Willis movie. <laughs> Yeah, which sounds like Bruce Willis. Also known as John McClane. John McClane. It, I, you know, the, yeah, so a few people uh, mm -hmm. got their- uh, Knickers, knickers in a knot. Yeah. You know. It's just part of our tradition and expect yeah. expect it again next year. Yeah, next year we will do a similar thing. It, it's And what? I have it already in mind oh, and it God. might be one that you will say, wow, this is a crazy case. Yeah. And before you know it, yep. you'll begin to realize that maybe this isn't real. Yeah. Or I mean, maybe you won't again. I mean, we did lose uh, a few listeners. We uh, did lose that, a, that I'm sure of because they we, voiced it. We lost that actually, I think one. Well, one we can say definitively. Well, we can't even, because that person may still listen. Yeah. But it, and if you're listening, we didn't mean to hurt your feelings. No. No, like it, quite the opposite. We're trying to keep our Christmas episodes, because I don't think people really need to hear about uh, I don't death write and about... devastation no. uh, during the holidays. And no. so, we, you know, we're, we, it, our intent is to keep it light and make people laugh and give them something to smile about right. um, if it had a differing effect on you. I, I am <laughs> yeah, well. sorry about that, but, well. uh, you know, it, that, uh, yeah, yeah, it, it it's going to continue. Oh, well, we got nominated for two Canadian podcast awards anyway. So. We did. We did. And the vast, 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 vast majority of feedback was people loved the episode. Yeah, there you go. I also got some feedback from somebody who recently listened to the end of the episodes and heard about the Yumber Yard, which is our Facebook group yes. there. Yes. And she said, I don't typically listen to the end of episodes, so I don't hear that kind of thing. So yeah. we're telling you here at the beginning of the episode, we have a Facebook group. Yeah. It is called the Yumber Yard. Come on and join it. You will be one of over 6,000 people there. Yeah. And it is for the size that it is. Very it, respectful. It, it is a very respectful and uh, incredible little group. And stick around after the episode and you'll hear some fun stuff like some Patreon shout outs and some voicemails that yeah. people have left us. What one specific about? the Yumber Yard yes. and the power of it. There you go. But you have to wait until the end of the episode That's to hear right. that. That's right. And we're going to Crime Con May 1st to 3rd. Oh. That's right. Orlando, Florida. Get your tickets for Crime Con 2020. You can use Poutine 20 as your checkout code to get 10% off your tickets. And if you get tickets, it really helps us out. So please, yes. please do it. Yes. Yeah. Please use our code because that, that gets us some... Um, there are benefits for us when you guys do that. Right. Show benefits that yes. uh, assist us actually paying for the event. And, and also further events, because if we, if it's deemed that we're getting a lot of uh, uh, 
listeners will be invited back. Yeah, we'll be invited back and, you know. And, Which is what happened this year. Yeah, and we would like that. So on to this week's case. Oh. This week, we're heading back to Victorian times. Oh. To cover the crimes of Scottish-Canadian physician, Dr. Neil Thomas Cream. What a name. Named the Lambeth Poisoner. Oh. He left a trail of death behind him in Canada, the United States, and finally in England. Well, that is quite widespread, this yes. trail of death. Yes, this trail of death. This serial killer, Thomas Neil Cream, was born in Glasgow, Scotland, on May 27, 1850. He was the oldest of eight children. Cream's father, Willie, was a 27-year-old shipyard clerk and carried his Bible with him wherever he went. His mother, Mary, also a religious but quiet woman, wanted to move west for a new adventure, but her family objected. In the end, she got her way. When Thomas was four years old, the family sailed from Liverpool, England, mm -hmm. and moved to Canada, settling just outside Quebec City on Rue de Montcalm near other English-speaking families. Mm. Because, you know, you're emigrating to another country, there are people who speak a different language, you're going to want to hang in a community that people understand you in. It's yeah. much like what happens here in other parts of Canada. Yeah, for sure. And in 1850, I don't think they had Rosetta Stone or Babel. No. So, I no, mean, they definitely it's much more difficult to pick up a language. Thomas's dad found work quickly, and Mary gave birth to two twin boys soon after the family bought their first house in Canada. Mm. Another son and daughter soon followed. Mary doted on all her children, all eight of them eventually. That's a lot of kids. Like that, that puts the Brady Bunch to shame. Well, the, one of my, the people who lived next door to my grandmother as she grew up had 13. Holy cow. Yeah. Did they have their own TLC special? No, uh -huh. but they had a farm. Wow. <laughs> wow. Willie favored his eldest son, Thomas, having high hopes for him. And Thomas was a precocious, smart, and creative child. He enjoyed sports and fitness and held himself in high regard to the point of cockiness. Okay, yeah. His father also taught him hunting. As with many of these older cases, some of the stories may be hyperbole that authors use to fill in some of the gaps in mm -hmm. stories. Although finding a corroborating source is difficult and almost impossible in some cases, some of these stories can be compelling, so this one is kind of worth telling. Yeah. One of the stories is that the Kareem family had a dog that died after ingesting rat poison that someone had left lying around. The story goes that young Thomas, who did not like the dog at all, mm. got his father's permission to autopsy the dog in the woodshed. What the what now? Right. I'm a parent. Yeah, I can't see Bibby or, or Vi asking to autopsy. Tenko. Tenko. Yeah. If he passed away, they'd be, they'd be mortified and upset. Well, and even if they did ask... I don't think I would be giving permission. You know what? Sure, go for it. I see well, this. You don't being... have a woodshed. This little do you know. True. Well, you could do it in the basement, I guess. Yeah. It's kind of woodish. Yeah, but it's a weird thing to want to want to autopsy your yeah. dog. Yeah. Yeah. I, I might question. So why do you want to autopsy the dog? Mm. <laughs> That's a great question, Daddy. <laughs> I, Perhaps I, I want to play around in his entrails as I'm going to become a serial killer in later life. You know what? Let's go ahead then. There you go. Thomas grew into a fine-looking and distinguished, albeit slightly cross-eyed young gentleman and began an education in medicine studying at McGill University in Montreal. And we're looking at a picture of him now. He's wearing his silk top hat and a very fine uh, suit and collar uh, yeah. with his big bushy mustache. 
and uh, oddly crossed eyes. And we're not making fun of you if you have crossed eyes, but we think it's kind of amusing that a serial killer was crossed. Yeah, and I'm I'm looking. That's a great portrait. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a great photo. Uh, that is a well pressed suit. Yeah. No, this is not Photoshop. That is a well-pressed suit. Definitely. Uh, he looks dapper as hell. Yep. The cover of this book, though, didn't give any hint of the dark story going on inside. Oh. It was here at McGill that Thomas made his first foray into crime in 1874, mm. two years into his medical degree. Mm-hmm. He liked fine things and tended to live a little beyond his means, getting himself into debt. So... He took out a $1,000 insurance policy on his belongings. I'm, I'm assuming that's probably equivalent to like half a mil. Sure. No. I don't know. I mean. It's a lot of money in yeah. those days. In the 1800s. Yeah. In the 1870s. That would definitely be a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah. He orchestrated a fire in his apartment at 106 Mansfield Street that burned some things he didn't really care about. <laughs> like, like the dog? No. Just oh. books and stuff. Yeah. Who cares yeah. about those? The insurance investigators were suspicious at first, but eventually paid out a portion of Thomas's claim. Well, I mean, that's good for Thomas. That's not good for the insurance industry. No. Cream was also drinking and visiting local prostitutes. Oh, Cream. Despite his medical training in 1874, he contracted syphilis. Oh, Cream. He was suffering from massive headaches as a symptom of his venereal disease, and a colleague prescribed him morphine, telling him he'd eventually go insane. (laughs) <laughs> prescribed him morphine. Yes. Well, oh, for the headaches. Oh, the 1800s. Yeah. Wow. Cream became hopelessly addicted to the cure for his headaches, but morphine was much easier to acquire than if this story were more contemporary. Both syphilis and addiction had a strong hold on the young man. Yeah. Addiction will do that. It definitely, yes, I can attest yeah, to it'll, that. I just caught up in morphine. Like, Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty wow. bad. Like that's your, that's the tree here. This will help you get better. No, this will help you get whacked out of your mind. Exactly. In spite of the health setback, Cream continued his education and graduated as an MD in 1876. He had become an expert in the use of chloroform, a <laughs> relatively new anesthetic. Mm-hmm. Yep. Soon after graduation, Thomas met Flora Eliza Brooks, a young woman from nearby Waterloo, Ontario. Oh, Again, apparently forgetting his medical training, Flora became pregnant almost instantly. (laughs) You know what, you know the expression, uh, practice what you preach. I don't, I guess he's not, he's not adhering to. Right. When Flora's parents found out about her predicament, they demanded the young couple get married. Mm -hmm. You know, and even today, if that happens, people will demand that exact same thing. It was much more serious back then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, um, with his syphilis, please tell me, I, I hope to hell, you probably didn't find it in your research, but I hope to hell at least four people said to him, uh, you need to put a cream on that. No. Because cream? No. His name's cream? I know. Cream? That's Tom- funny. Yeah. Thomas had plans for his life that didn't really suit him having a wife or child so early, especially as cream planned to head to London to further his education in in. Britain, across mm-hmm. the water. Yeah, it sounds like he's considering them extra baggage. Thomas convinced Flora to allow him to perform a secret abortion. Oh, God. Well, rather than, you know, he is a doctor, rather I, yeah. than send her to somebody else. Uh-huh, yeah, sure. Yeah, he was a medical doctor and surgeon, so. Uh, yep, well. Hmm. 
After the surgery, the couple's secret was outed when Flora began bleeding heavily and required another doctor's help as Thomas sat drinking in a hotel bar nearby. This is, he's quite the fella. He sounds like I'm, a great guy. Yeah, he really does. Flora's parents were again livid, but Thomas agreed to marry Flora to shut them up. <laughs> he had a plan to escape that no one knew about. On September 12, 1876, the day after the couple's nuptials, Thomas snuck out of the house and onto a passenger ship bound for England and an internship at St. Thomas's Hospital in South London. Are you kidding me? So like, I'm he, not kidding. he just like, peace out, <laughs> he sneaks out. Day after they got married. Yeah. See ya. What the hell? What? Bye, Flora. Wow. Hey, yeah. I mean, she's, wow, when she wakes up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Holy shit. In 1877, still in England, Cream mm -hmm. received a telegram telling him that Flora had passed away from consumption, also known as tuberculosis or the White Plague. Mm -hmm. And tuberculosis does not seem like a fun time. From WebMD.com, the symptoms of active TB include, quote, a cough that lasts more than three weeks, chest pain, coughing up blood, feeling tired all the time, night sweats, chills, fever, loss of appetite, weight loss. If you have any of these symptoms... See your doctor and get tested. Get medical help right away if you have chest pain. I think I have TB. I knew that was going to happen. Yeah. Well, I mean, legit. <laughs> you do tend to sleep a lot. I do. I don't know if you're coughing up blood, though, are you? No. Well, but, but I mean, definitely. yeah. The disease may also be latent, so you might need to get a blood or skin tested to determine whether or not you have it. So mm -hmm. you may actually have TB. I've always wanted to say that I, I'm, I, I've got consumption. You've got the tuberculosis. Yeah, I, oh, yeah, no, you don't want to have to consumption. say that. Uh, throughout history, until scientific advances got it under control, tuberculosis was a popular topic in art and literature. In the 19th century, its influence reached its peak and was called the romantic disease. Uh oh TB was featured in some of the most popular novels of the era, including Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin, mm -hmm. Victor Hugo's two best-known works, Les Miserables and The Hunchback of Notre Dame, mm -hmm. and many times in Russian author Fyodor Dostoevsky's works, including Crime and Punishment and The Idiot. Mm. Poet John Keats and my favorite, Edgar Allan Poe, also used consumption as themes in their poems. Oh, nothing about the vapors? No, no. The Brooks family blamed their daughter's death, not on the disease alone, but the fact that her heart was broken by Cream, who had left immediately after their marriage. In a roundabout way, some consider Flora's death as Dr. Cream's first murder. Yeah, this poor lady. Just imagine that. You wake up. Day after you got married. The day after you get married. Gone. Gone. Like you just see a... a Dr. Cream-shaped hole yeah. in the side of the wall. If, I, if my math serves me correct, it's about a year later that she passed away. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I can imagine that's a year of just heartache and just, I give up, yep. you know, not taking the best care of yourself. And... But Cream didn't react the way you think that he would. Even if he didn't really care for her, he probably would have went, oh, that's too bad. Yeah, but, it does completely. What, oh, well, that sucks. But he wasn't overly upset hearing Flora passed away. In fact, he thought it was an opportunity of course he did. As he was still married to her, Thomas went after Flora's family for a $1,000 inheritance to ease his pain. He messaged Flora's father, who refused to pay him anything at first, but eventually they settled on $200 to make the selfish jerk go away. Yeah, wow. 
What a sack of shit. <laughs> Not a nice guy. Cream's continuing education was a little bumpy, as he was still suffering from his syphilitic headaches and was tamping them down with heavy doses of morphine and alcohol from his long nights out. It's quite the trio. He was persistent, though, and his knowledge of the applications of chloroform earned him a job as an obstetric assistant, which helped pay the bills and keep him supplied with booze, drugs, and sex workers until he graduated from school. Wow. So his existence was just sustaining his addictions. Essentially, which yeah, is typical makes, of yeah, the, yeah, an addiction. addiction yeah. Yeah. In 1878, Cream went to Edinburgh, Scotland, where he studied at the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons, a school we mentioned in our episode on serial murderers and corpse dealers, yeah. Burke and Hare. Yeah. He partied his way through his time in that country as well. So he was there... At the time, around that, those times when all that weirdness was going on. Well, I mean, if you're um, demented. I guess so. Seems like the place to be at that time. When his education was finally finished in 1879, Cream packed his bags and made his way back to Canada, hmm. opening a, quote, women's clinic. Oh, no. On Dundas Street in London, Ontario, quietly performing abortions for unwed women requiring his service. <sighs> he was a busy bee. I am very uncomfortable with this. Yeah. Still, his headaches plagued him, sometimes to the point of being debilitated for days at a time. But again, morphine dulled the throbbing. <laughs> yeah, as it, it'll dull pretty much most things. Everything. When he was well enough, Cream spent time with numerous women, some of whom he'd met at his thriving practice. This is what I was worried about. He selfishly and unethically took advantage of already emotionally vulnerable women, using his good looks and station as their trusted doctor to woo them. Mm -hmm. As an abortionist, he had insider knowledge of exactly what he could get when dating these women. Oh, that, uh, that pisses me off. Yeah. I, yeah. In August of 1879, a 19-year-old chambermaid named Kate Gardner came into Cream's surgery in need of his services. Some accounts claim that the young Miss Gardner was a mistress of Cream, but this is unverified. Mm -hmm. What is known is that Kate was found dead in the outhouse in the alley behind Cream's surgery. Whoa. There was an empty bottle of chloroform and a rag found with her body. You've got to be shitting me. I am not. So a man whose specialty is chloroform, mm -hmm. one of his specialties is chloroform. Yeah. A girl was found dead in the outhouse behind yeah. Yeah. his uh, surgery, yeah. his, his place of work with a... Ooh. So it was in fact determined that she had died of an overdose of chloroform. Mm -hmm. An inquest was held and Cream denied he'd given Kate an abortion and was treating her for senescence. What? And it's... Shorthand is it's a condition of a cellular condition that may lead to cancer. Oh, oh, yeah. Cream said that Kate had been despondent and claimed she'd died by suicide using the chloroform she'd stolen from him on herself. Wow, how convenient. Yeah. From an article on the Lambeth Poisoner on murderbygaslight.com, quote, there was not enough evidence to indict Cream, but his reputation was damaged when Sarah Long testified that he not only gave her medicine, but suggested that money could be made by accusing a wealthy resident of her boarding house of being the father of her child. Mm -hmm. A doctor testified that it would be impossible 
for a person attempting suicide to hold a chloroform-soaked sponge over their own nose long enough to cause death. The coroner's jury ruled the death was murder by persons unknown. Dr. Cream quickly left for America, end quote. Holy shit. This guy just has no morals. None. None whatsoever. He's just doing his own thing. It's all about just getting money and That's, fulfilling whatever needs. It's that narcissistic, yeah. crazy, yep. So he went to the Windy City. Chicago, Illinois was where he landed next in 1880. And these this is before the uh, World's Fair and H.H. Mm. Holmes was doing his thing there. Oh, okay, yeah. Dr. Cream stuck to his typical M.O. and opened up a clinic near the red light district where he knew he'd get a steady stream of patients. Condoms and other forms of birth control were pretty much non-existent or unused at this point. Yes. You could get sheepskin, but there was no vulcanized rubber at the time. Well, most, most forms of birth control back then were not very effective, uh, effective no. at all. As Cream's mainstream of revenue, abortion, was illegal in that city, he had to treat male patients in between his more lucrative clients to maintain the subterfuge of operating as a general MD. Yeah, yeah, sure. The cops were onto him, though, as people talk, but he was able to carry on his business with the help of an African-American midwife named Hattie Mack. Hmm. Having an actual medical professional carrying out abortions was almost unheard of in that era. Typically, it was midwives and other more amateur practitioners who carried out the dirty deed in back rooms and basements. Yeah. And deaths from the procedures were common. Knowing that a doctor was going to perform the surgery put cream services in high demand, making him a lot of money. I mean, he's a piece of shit, but he, he's... Not a dumb piece yeah, of shit. Yeah, yeah. Which is... I, the, I think the worst kind of piece of shit. From William W. Cauliflower, MD's book, Monsters of Medicine, quote, Early in 1880, a ground floor tenant in Hattie Mac's apartment, George Green, became concerned of a foul odor emanating from Mac's second floor room. Oh no. Police were called, the door broken down, and the partially decomposed body of a Canadian-born prostitute, Marianne Faulkner, was found. No. A forensic exam established the cause of death to be an abortion gone wrong. Oh. Hattie was found, arrested and charged with murder. The midwife opened up long and loud, blaming everything on cream. Green, the tenant, confirmed her story that cream had made frequent visits to the apartment during the preceding weeks. Cream was arrested and found himself in jail, charged with murder. Okay. End quote. Oh, all right. He's in the big house. Hattie Mack testified on behalf of the prosecution at Cream's trial, claiming she'd been forced to take in Marianne Faulkner as a roommate so Cream could perform an abortion. Cream had botched the abortion, and in spite of his best efforts, the young woman had died of sepsis, which Ugh, is like that's not a good, Yeah, that's not a good way to go. Cream's defense attorney brought in other doctors to testify that they were often called upon to help women who'd undergone backroom procedures in the manner mentioned as prior. Mm. The all-white, all-male jury believed the dapper cream over the poor black woman's testimony. Yeah, that's infuriating, but I, I completely believe it. Cream was acquitted in November of 1880. Holy shit. He went back to work. The next woman to die horribly in Cream's care was a young sex worker named Ellen Stack. 
She was pregnant, but rather than perform an abortion, Cream prescribed abortion pills mm. to his patient. What the uneducated woman did not know is that there was no such thing as abortion pills recognized by any proper medical organization. Okay. From Monsters of Medicine, quote, These pills were made up by a local chemist, a pharmacist, but always delivered to Cream's office where he in turn delivered them to his patients. The pills were heavily laced with strychnine, and after ingestion, the young girl suffered a horrible death of one titanic convulsion after another, finally dying of asphyxia within an hour. Cream now added a new twist to his deranged activity. He sent a blackmail letter to the chemist, who compounded the medication, accusing him of an error in the prescription and threatened exposure. The chemist, Frank Pia, who was well-known and respected in the community, took the letter to the police. Hmm. After a preliminary investigation, the case was dropped as authorities were unable to link the pills directly to cream, oh, end quote. It's so infuriating because nowadays we know, forensically, it would be easy to conclude. But back then, unless you watch somebody take the pill. Not so much. Yeah. And we'll take a bit of a break right here. And we're back. Cream continued using blackmail as a means to make money, using his position as a physician and intimate knowledge of people's health as his leverage. If you were wealthy and you came into him for treatment for, say, a venereal disease, you might find yourself in a pickle as the doctor threatened to reveal your embarrassing predicament or stay quiet for a fee. Oh my God, I loathe this human being. He was also known to use rich widows for their fortunes, bleeding them dry with promises of companionship and hints of marriage. Holy shit, what a despicable man. <laughs> right? My God. Seeing the gullibility of the masses, Cream created and began selling his own magic elixir, he claimed would treat epilepsy. Mm -hmm. One man who came for the treatment for the disorder was a wealthy 61-year-old man named Daniel Stott. With Stott came his pretty 33-year-old wife, Julia, oh, who caught Cream's attention. Mm -hmm. Soon, over a course of visits, the two became romantically involved. But Daniel was starting to get wise to the affair. I see where this is going. According to the September 22, 1881 edition of the Chicago Tribune, Julia Stott came alone to Cream's office to pick up her husband's medication on June 11, 1881. Dr. Cream gave her a prescription and told her to go to Buck and Rayner's druggists and get it filled. After obtaining the prescription, Julia returned to Dr. Cream's office. The doctor took the medicine from her and she saw him put some white powder into it. Oh, for fuck's sake. It's believed that Julia and Dr. Cream then had sex in his office as she waited for the train. Mm -hmm. When Julia returned home, she gave the medicine to Daniel as prescribed by Dr. Cream and Daniel died short after. Mm -hmm. Daniel was quickly buried. There was no initial suspicion as he'd been quite sickly at the time. And, and uh, old. It was Cream himself who tipped the authorities off about Stott's poisoning. What? He telegrammed the coroner stating he believed the businessman had been poisoned by an incompetent druggist and it was his intention to sue for damages on Julia's behalf. Oh my shit. A dog was given a dose of the medicine prescribed by Cream to Stott, 
and sure enough in 15 minutes the dog died. It was determined that there had been enough strychnine in it to kill at least three people. Oh my shit. Sure enough, after exhumation and examination, Stott's body testified to having been poisoned in the same way. Oh, so they could determine. Okay. Well, they determined by the uh, contents of his stomach because it kills you so quickly it doesn't absorb. Uh, Okay. Strychnine poisoning is not a pleasant way to go. From an article on the now-defunct crimemagazine.com, Quote, between 10 and 20 minutes after taking the poison, head and neck muscles start to spasm. The face spasms as well, presenting with what doctors call rhesus sardonicus, the familiar grimace, so common with strychnine poisoning and also tetanus and epileptic fits. So you can see why he would poison somebody who was epileptic. Yes. I mean, as we mentioned, he's not stupid. The article goes on to say, convulsions spread throughout the victim's body and instantly become worse even with the slightest stimulus, such as light or an increase in room temperature. Wow. The convulsions build until the victim is continuously racked with the entire body spasming to the point where only the victim's head and heels will actually touch the floor. Oh my God. Other effects are lactic acidosis, a painful building of acid within the muscles. You get that after you've worked yeah, out or run. Yeah. Hyperthermia, a massive swift increase in the victim's temperature as opposed to hypothermia, which is a drop. Rhabdomyolysis, which is a breakdown of the muscle fibers that leaches myoglobin into the bloodstream, often resulting in kidney damage. Death is usually caused by either paralysis of the lungs resulting in suffocation or by extreme muscular exhaustion from the convulsions that usually occur two to three hours after the victim has taken the initial dose. But we see that the dog, for example, died 15 within 15 minutes. minutes. Yeah. So these are very high doses. Yeah. Throughout those hours, the victim is usually at least partially conscious and always in the most excruciating pain. As such, strychnine is certainly the perfect weapon of choice for anyone seeking not only to kill their victims, but also to inflict the maximum level of physical and mental anguish. Yeah. So he was a sadist as yeah. well. Yeah. Yeah, like that, that is absolute torture. What the effects of strychnine just sound like the way you go is either you suffocate, you yep. can't breathe, or, or your, your, your body, body just gives is up. so fatigued it says, I'm done. Yep, it's crazy. Like, holy shit. After talking to all involved, police and prosecutors determined that it was Cream who'd poisoned Stott for cash and to keep the affair between he and Julia quiet. Julia, looking at charges herself, turned state's evidence and testified against her former lover at trial. Julia's 10-year-old daughter, Amy, testified against Cream as well, stating, Dr. Cream told me he loved my mother and would like her as his own. Hmm. So you can, yeah, he just was getting so confident in his scams and schemes that he, yeah, as soon as you mentioned, like, he... He's the one who went after said the chemist. He was poisoned and, by the chemist. Yeah, like that's where you start. Yeah. Another woman, Mary McClellan, was in the company of Cream on June 11th after Ju- Julia had returned home. Mm. She testified that Cream had told her that he expected to hear Daniel Stott had passed away only hours before it actually happened. Oh, okay. So you know, I I bet you that Stott fellow is going to die tonight. Gee, I wonder how he knew that. <laughs> because he'd poisoned him. <laughs> He's just a great uh, 
psychic. Yeah. Early Kreskin. In his defense, Cream, of course, claimed Julia was evil and had planned on her own to kill her husband and frame him. The jury saw through Cream's crapola. From Monsters of Medicine, quote, on September 23rd, 1881, they found Cream guilty of murder and sentenced him to life in prison and to spend one day each year in solitary confinement. Interesting. On November 1st, the trim 182-pound murderer known as prisoner number 4374 entered the gates of six-foot-thick, 25-feet stone walls of the Illinois State Prison at Joliet, protesting his innocence all the way, yeah. end quote. Yeah, he doesn't sound like somebody who's very contrite. No, but this isn't the end of Cream's story. Why, He's sentenced to life be? in prison. Yeah, you would think that would be the end of his story. It's not. Okay. Thanks to the work behind the scenes of Frank Cream, who believed his elder brother was wrongfully convicted, after 10 years behind bars, Illinois Governor Pfeiffer extended clemency to Dr. Cream, and he walked free. Mike! No! <laughs> right? No! This is why I picked these ones, because they're just crazy. No way! Prison and years of morphine abuse had greatly aged Dr. Cream. Yeah, it'll do that. He went back to Ontario just long enough to gather a $16,000 inheritance from his father's estate and split for England again in the fall of 1891. Yeah, that's some fat cash back then. Yep. Cream got a room in a boarding house across the street from St. Thomas Hospital, the same one that he'd been at in London. Mm -hmm. But now he was calling himself Dr. Thomas Neal. Oh, all right. I wonder why he wasn't using his real name. Well. The doctor was a shadow of the strapping young man he'd once been. He still suffered from the headaches, and no doubt his syphilis had progressed mightily. From MurderByGaslight.com, someone who knew him in London described him this way. Quote, Women were his preoccupation and his talk of them far from agreeable. He carried pornographic photographs, which he was ready to display. He was in the habit of taking pills, which he said were compounded of strychnine, morphia, cocaine, and of which effect he declared was an aphrodisiac. Mm -hmm. In short, he was a degenerate of filthy habits and practices, end quote. That sounds about right. <laughs> yeah, it definitely does. Yeah. On October 9th, 1891, after being seen in the company of a man matching the description of cream, a 19-year-old London alcoholic sex worker named Ellen Donworth was seen stumbling and eventually falling flat on her face near a public house. From the book, A Prescription for Murder by Angus McLaren, quote, Someone has given me a drink. Take me home, she begged. A friend picked her up and, with the assistance of a man called Adams, helped the young woman, now writhing in pain, back to Duke Street. Her landlady, at first, took her trembling and twitching for signs of excessive drinking. But in between her bouts of agonizing convulsions, Ellen Dunworth was able to mumble, A tall gentleman with cross eyes and a silk hat and bushy whiskers gave me a drink, twice out of a bottle with white stuff in it. Little attention was initially paid to her ravings, end quote. Just like a word of advice to people out there. Don't drink anything from a stranger, especially if it has white things. Yeah. Globules in it. A doctor was called who recognized strychnine poisoning, and although Ellen was rushed to the hospital, she died on the way. Strychnine poisoning was later confirmed as the cause of death. Exactly a week later, 
Another alcoholic sex worker, a 27-year-old named Matilda Clover, died convulsing and writhing in pain at her boarding house on Lambeth Road. She claimed a man who called himself Fred had poisoned her. A letter was found in her room from a man calling himself Fred, asking her to meet outside the Canterbury Public House, reminding her that he'd recently bought her a new pair of boots. Oddly, he'd also asked her to bring the note and its envelope with her, a task she neglected to complete, leaving the evidence behind. Mm -hmm. At first, it was thought she died in delirium tremens as a result of her alcoholism, from addictioncenter.com. Quote, delirium tremens is a condition which characterizes extreme alcohol withdrawal. Delirium tremens, or the DTs, is potentially fatal because it causes seizures. About one in every 20 people who experience alcohol withdrawal will also suffer delirium tremens. The condition is most likely to occur when people who are severely addicted to alcohol and have experienced alcohol withdrawal in the past. Most symptoms of delirium tremens usually begin within two or three days after the person stops drinking, sometimes the day after. Mm. If you or someone you know exhibits signs of delirium tremens, it is important to get them help right away. The symptoms of DTs include emotional distress, fatigue, fever, hallucinations, hypersensitivity to sound, touch, and light, intense agitation or irritability, intense confusion, seizures, which... I mentioned before, usually occur within one day of the last drink. Oh, End quote. Finally, we, we covered something that I don't think I have. Well, I have had. Oh, it's always one of us. Yeah. I, I actually did go through Jeez. that. But, uh, yeah, it wasn't as bad as it gets for some. Hmm. The current mortality rate for those suffering from DTs is approximately 5%. However, in Victorian times, this number was much higher as effective treatment was lesser known and harder, harder to obtain. Yeah. Makes sense. Two days after Ellen Dunworth died, another sex worker named Lou Harvey met a tall, cross-eyed man in a top hat, claiming to be a doctor at St. Thomas Hospital. The doctor had promised to take Lou to a performance at the Oxford Music Hall, but first they would go for a drink at a pub. The doctor provided her with some white pills, saying they'd help with her complexion. When Lou pocketed the pills, saying she'd take them later, the man suddenly had other things to do and gave her some money to take herself to the show. She later threw the pills away, but had no idea how close she'd come to death until months later. Yeah, shit. Wow. Right? It's terrif- that's a terrifying thought. Good for you, Lou. Yeah. yeah. In the meantime, Dr. Cream visited family back in Canada and made a trip across the border into New York where he purchased another 500 strychnine pills that he took back to London with him and had murder on his mind. <sighs> I mean, you would think, Mike, mm-hmm. you would think you've committed murder, you've been found guilty, you spent 10 years in jail, you get out. Yeah. You would think, you would be like, you know what? I think that was close enough. But the boozing barber did the same stuff. I know. I know, but it just goes to show how how strong this urge to yep. to do what they do is. Well, because it's connected to sex, right? It's that yeah. sexual drive yeah. that's all confused in these cuckoo birds. Yeah. Wow. On the evening of April 11th, 1892, a cross-eyed doctor, calling himself Fred, accompanied two women, Alice Marsh, Emma Shravel, to their rooms at 18 Stamford Street. 
According to the book A Prescription for Murder, quote, he shared with them a dinner of beer and canned salmon and gave them three long pills. He left at about two in the morning. What stands out the most me there is canned salmon. <laughs> Despite being overheard screaming in pain and being attended to by a local surgeon, both girls died. And, again, the cause of death was determined to be strychnine poisoning. The police, who'd only four years before dealt with the Whitechapel murders of Jack the Ripper, mm. believed that there was another prostitute killer in the city. Yeah, well, there was. Perhaps it was Jack having changed up his M.O. They did not understand as much about the criminal mind and profiling as we do now. Regardless, they had a murderer to catch. Yep. As in Chicago, it was ultimately Dr. Thomas Neal Cream's narcissistic inability to believe he'd ever be suspected of the killings that led him to becoming suspect number one. Mm. From an article about Dr. Cream on the website CanadaHistory.com, quote, Cream could have escaped suspicion for these murders had he stayed quiet and kept to himself. Instead, he wrote letters under false names in an attempt to cast suspicion on innocent people and extort money from potential suspects. He bragged to others about his vast knowledge of the killings and even went so far as to take his friend, a former New York detective named John Haynes, on a tour of murder scenes. Jesus. That's right. As well as cockily taking a police officer on this tour, Cream tried to blackmail two others for the murder of Matilda Clover, who up to this point everybody believed died of natural causes. <sighs> so her case was reopened, and Cream was believed responsible. Mm -hmm. He was arrested and charged with her murder, and the Lambeth Poisoner was tried over four days in 1892. That's a quick trial. As well as other evidence collected by investigators, it was dramatic testimony of Lou Harvey that sealed his fate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So... This lady who lived to tell the tale threw yeah. those pills away was yeah. ultimately the nail in his coffin. Thank God. After deliberating a mere 10 minutes, the jury came back with a guilty verdict. Holy shit, 10, four-day trial, 10-minute jury. Uh, Murder trial. Wow. Yeah. Wow. The judge read the sentence, quote, Thomas Neal Cream, it is the sentence of this court that you be taken from this place to a lawful prison and thence to a place of execution where you shall be hanged by the neck until dead, and that your body shall be cut down and buried within the precincts of the prison in which you were last confined before execution. And may the Lord have mercy upon your soul. Remove the prisoner. End quote. So, uh, taken from this place to a lawful prison. So that poses the question, are there unlawful prisons? Yeah, I don't think so. I think hmm. Judge is just being fancy. He's totally being forthwith. Forthwith. <laughs> Here, heretofore. <laughs> On the morning of November 15th, 1892, Cream was awakened in his cell at Newgate Prison and taken to the gallows by Chief Public Executioner James Billington. Billington placed a hood over Cream's head. His body was strapped to prevent flailing, and the noose was placed around his neck. Yeesh. Billington later stated that Cream's last words, interrupted by the opening of the trap and the snap of the noose, were, I am Jack. Wow. Okay. Was Cream claiming to be Jack the Ripper? What the fuck? He'd been in prison at Joliet at the time of the Ripper murders. There have been some wild theories that Cream had a double who stayed in prison in Joliet, 
allowing him the freedom to travel to London, commit the Ripper murders, and return undetected to take his place back in prison. That sounds legit. Yeah, I, I don't. So he, he was in prison for 10 years. This isn't a person who can control his urges or uh, break from his MO for a 10 year period. What are you talking about? Well, he, so if he had somebody, a decoy in prison for him, uh, he would, that 10 year period. Right. No, but it was only for the time that he needed the. Yes. Yeah, oh, see. So just for that, just for the time of the crimes, like That's he would correct. have somebody come yeah, in and. Yeah. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, that's not, yeah. Yeah, this is totally. why you didn't understand because it's fucking hogwash. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, I know that. I totally, because if you have that ability, why not just escape? Yeah. Well. <laughs> like, and who's this person you can convince? He come, come stay in prison for my place in prison for a while. Dear cross-eyed men <laughs> with big mustaches and fancy suits, please come and. <laughs> if you but, have free time, please reply. Willing to pay. <laughs> Must oh, well. like prison. Well, so that's it for, uh, <laughs> that's it for this week's case. Man. What did you think of that guy? Uh, all I could envision the whole time is this would make a great episode of the Nick. <laughs> it, well, I think maybe some. <laughs> In regards, it seems like it, it could have been based on. Well, the, definitely the, the addiction part. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, because, uh, that guy was, uh, quite, quite quackers. What a dinkhole this guy is. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Like full on dinkhole. Yeah. My God. Oh my. My God. Yeah. Dinkhole I mean, is a good word. <laughs> And I want to say like you couldn't get away with this nowadays, but uh, no. No. People still do. Yeah. There's still dinkholes. <laughs> yeah. My God. Yeah. Yeah. You don't need to be in Victorian England to have a dinkhole. No. Or be one. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, thanks for this one, Mike. You're welcome. Yeah. Uh, so let's get to some voicemails. Forthwith. Forthwith, we'll get to the voicemails. <laughs> yes, if you want to leave us one, you can call 877-327-5786 or 1-877-DARKPTN. That's Dark Pitten. Do so, chaps. Do so. And our, our first voicemail is from a guy named Cade, and he had some nice things to say about folks in the Umber Yard. Super. Hey, guys. Uh, this is Cade calling from Wetasco in Alberta. Um, a big fan of the show. Really appreciate all the work that you guys do taking uh, really difficult topics and really difficult subject matter and making it uh, accessible for all of our delicate Canadian sensibilities. Um, it's really helped me through a lot of dark times. And as much as I want to thank you guys, I'm more calling in to thank the Umber Yard. Um, the last couple of days here, I, uh, I made a post on there uh, asking for them to kind of give some shout-outs and some words of love towards my good friend, Nikki, who is really having a tough time with some mental health and some mental illness issues. And she's just a phenomenal person, one of the best people that I know. And uh, really just was looking for some support and the Umber Yard came out in full force, giving so many words of love and encouragement and support to someone they've never even met. And that's something that I really appreciate. It's something that I think is amazing and that you don't find in a whole lot of communities online. Um, I passed on every single message to her, and she cried, and uh, she's doing better. Uh, your guys' words of encouragement definitely mean a lot and are definitely making a difference. So I just wanted to thank the community. Thank you uh, to you guys for 
fostering this kind of community where we can be so supportive of our fellow Canadians and fellow people in the world. And uh, I just really appreciate it. So thanks so much, guys. Uh, go shit in your hats and uh, keep up the good work. Thank you so much, Cade. That is awesome. It's really, really uh, heartwarming and powerful hearing that. that it, yeah. That little place we created is uh, helping somebody who's struggling. Yeah. It's really nice. It, 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 exactly. Like in there this week, we see people talking about the fires in Australia a lot and, mm-hmm. and you know, calling for help for people and, and those kind of things. So I've, I've seen a good chunk of posts uh th- the last two weeks, because this can be a very difficult time. The holidays can be a yep. very difficult time for a lot of people. And there have been a lot of people on there who um, were asking for some emotional support. And it was just great turnout after great turnout. So We got four great messages this week. Here's, this week. Here's another one from uh, somebody from Oregon, just, Oregon, just down the way. Hi, Mike and Scott. My name is Julian Bergman, and I'm calling from Corvallis, Oregon, home of the Oregon State University Beavers. Um, I just finished getting all caught up on all the episodes of your podcast, so I wanted to call and say hi and say thank you for all the great work that you're doing. It's been really exciting to listen from the beginning and um, see how your show has evolved over the past two years find out about how all these different parts of your show came to be. Um, I was referred to you by um, Georgia and Karen of My Favorite Murder, and I'm so glad that I heard about you all. I really appreciate how empathetic you are and how focused you are on giving respect and sensitivity to the victims and all of the stories that you tell. Um, So, yeah, thank you so much for all of the work that you do. I look forward to sending you some cashola for a donut or an Anaimo bar in the near future. Um, so yeah, thank you for everything and go shit in your hat. Bye-bye. <laughs> thank you so much. We love that go shit in your yeah. hat. Is what, a, what a hat shit. Yeah. We appreciate that a lot. It sounded like she was like delivering mail or something. While she, she, was, she could have been. She was bouncing around. She was probably cleaning up the house. Or, it's no better time to listen to us than when delivering mail. Multitasking. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, thank but you so much. Thank you so much. It means a lot when we get uh, voicemails from you folks. And yeah. I, I do love Portland. I want to go someday. I, yeah. I like Corvallis. Have you ever been? No. Yeah. I've been no. all over uh, Oregon. I love Oregon. I have not. I want to. All right. Next up, we have somebody from Hanover, Ontario. Hello. My name is Kathy. First, I just want to thank you for your great podcast. I enjoy your brilliant personalities and the humanity you put into these stories. I wanted to draw you your attention to a story from my hometown of Hanover, Ontario and the tragic murder of Christine Heron. Other people have told her story over the years, but I really feel you guys would do it in a way that honors her life of 15 years and her family before the monster came and took her. Thank you. Wow. Oh, wow, indeed. It, yeah, that, that is a case that's on our list to do at some point. And it it really pleases me and makes me uh, feel good about what we do when we hear somebody say, um, we think you can bring to this case 
the compassion yeah. and, and attention needed because we really do try to uh, display uh, a love for victims. Yeah. And so that's it's really, it's really kind to hear that. So thank you. And last up, we had a message from a Canadian in Spain. Hey, Mike and Scott, how's it going? Um, this is Alicia. I'm calling you from Spain. No, I am not an exchange student. I am a Canadian who just found her happy place elsewhere. Um, that being said, I love your podcast. It's amazing. I am probably one of the few lucky Canadians who can say that I have probably visited all of Canada. Before I uh, moved away, I uh, had the opportunity of working for one of Canada's main airlines, and I pretty much got to visit all of the country, and it's just so amazing. Every time I hear something in your podcast, I can say, like, oh, my God, I've been there. I know I know that place. And, I mean, as Canadians, we travel a lot to the States and all that, but uh, I'm one of the few lucky ones who can say, hey, I've been to Yellowknife, I've been to Gander, I've been to these places. So that's it. Pretty cool. And, uh, yeah, I mean, sure, I found my happy place elsewhere. I live in Spain now, but uh, your podcast is awesome. And uh, that's it. So, I mean, I think I wanted to say other things. But anyways, you guys have a good time. Thank you so much for the podcast. And if ever you choose to do an outside game in Spain, um, please message me. I'm in your yummy yard. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. That's very cool. It was great that you found your happy place. I, I, I'm still looking for mine. mine. My my happy place would be the ability to just pick up and fly anywhere like that. I've always envied people mm. who work for airlines for yeah. the ability to do that. I know you may have to fly standby or wait for like an empty jump seat or something like that, yeah. but still that would be amazing to be able to do that. My happy place is a candy store. Yes, I, I mine definitely... <laughs> Involves sugar as well. That's so cool. Living in Spain. Living in Spain. That'd be a beautiful place. So let's get on to our Patreon shout outs. Do it. We're doing it. Uh, first up is Helen Watson, and she is from Edinburgh. Oh, Scotland. Uh, yeah. I, I love Scotland. I do too. You know that? You do? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I've mentioned it. Yeah, because it has the word. Scott, in it, yeah. Mike, I'm named after the country. Roxanne Franklin from Yorkton, Saskatchewan. Roxanne. She doesn't have to put on the red you light. don't have to put on the red light. Yep. <laughs> Beautiful. Well. Did you think Sting was here for a minute? No. Oh, <laughs> whoa. The Lazy Sherlock. <laughs> what? It's our friend Ian Brannon. Oh. And, but we, we don't know where Ian's from. No, oh, you don't. No. Yeah, well. That doesn't mean we, Mike. Some of us know where the lazy Sherlock is from. Okay. Yeah. Alabama. Abalama. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's how some, per, per, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A, a, Alabama. Okay. What does he do in Abalama? Uh, well, you might think a private detective. Does he bam a lamb? Well, I mean, that's the song. Oh, I'm aware. Okay. What does he do? Uh, uh. You're uh, making this up. No. No, no. I just know so many people. Sometimes okay. it's difficult. What to, does Ian to do? Oh, um, Ian. Yeah. Uh, makes plaster. Okay. With concrete. Just don't question it. Okay. Paintings. Uh, what does he paint? That's it. It's just a concrete. Oh. 
Uh, oh, I get concrete it. Concrete in so a frame. So he's, he's like the, uh, uh, who's the splatter Banksy? guy? No, oh, Pollock? Yeah, he's the no, Jackson no. Pollock of- No, it's legit just like concrete. That is actually probably art somewhere, just so you know. Probably. Yeah. Banana paint uh, taped to a wall. Yeah. Mm. Uh, <laughs> so thank you, Ian. Next up, we have Vanessa Lindsay from Ohatton, Alberta. Oh. Yeah. Ohatton. 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 Where is Ohatton, Alberta? I don't know. I'm not going to look it up because I'm lazy. Yeah. Next up, we have, <laughs> thank you so much, Vanessa. <laughs> Next up, we have Bridget Chang from Stillwell, Kansas. Hey, Bridget. Thank you, Bridget Chang. Bridget. Lauren Fitzroy from Verona, Pennsylvania. I, why do I know the name Verona? Hmm. Verona was uh, the city in R Romeo and Juliet. My, 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 my Verona. No. No, not that? Uh, well, no. It's close. Thank you, Lauren. Jennifer Trebon from Places Unknown, I guess. The, did you know that's an actual place? What? Places Unknown. Yeah, no, I don't know. Yeah, that's the name. That's where she's from. It's from Places Unknown. Okay. Yeah, yeah. What does she do there? Oh, Unknown? Uh, no, it's known. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's very, she's a news anchor. Jennifer is a news anchor. She's a news anchor for the Unknown News Hour. <laughs> so it's it it was previously unknown, Yeah. but once you watch it, it's known news. No, no, it's still unknown. But it's because they like gives us the unknown news hour, which also signifies they don't know what hour they're putting it on. You make my head hurt. <laughs> so there's a lot of unknown. Like, what is it on? I don't know. They just it, they just pick a time, different time every day. <laughs> no, there's no help. From somewhere in the UK is Samantha James. Oh, where in the UK is she from? Wales. Wales. Okay, yeah, she's yeah. Welsh. Yeah, she's well, Welsh. There you go. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, she's Welsh. And she makes Welsh's candy. It's Welch's candy. It's close enough, Mike. It's yeah. close enough. She makes those wonderful gummy candies there. I like the grapey yeah, ones. Specifically grape flavor. They're so full of sugar they make me sweat. Yeah. She does yeah. specifically grape. She's a grapist is what they call them in the industry. <laughs> Whoa. She's a little grapey? Yeah. No, they don't like to they don't like to say that. That's yeah. demeaning. No, she's a grapist. Well, thank you, Samantha, for being a grapist. She's the greatest grapist. Oh, this is terrible. <laughs> Next up, we have Anita Swenson from Duluth, Minnesota. I do need a, Anita Swenson. I do need a Swenson. Anita man to hug and kiss. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sure, she's never heard no. this reference. Well, thank you, Anita. Yeah. Erin Elizabeth Ferguson, and she is from Kansas City, Missouri. Kansas. Thank Can you, Erin. Kansas. Next, we have Angie. Yeah. Angie. You don't have to put on no, a different. No, light. it's Rolling Stones. No. Oh, yeah, it's pretty close. That was pretty close. Uh, but where's Angie from? Uh, um, uh, um, I think she's a weed dealer that lives in Compton. No, Mike. Oh, okay. Jesus, no. Well, no. She she's from Stompsville. Okay. Yep. And. And that, then she's a weed dealer and stuff. <laughs> she's a, yeah, she's a weed dealer there. Yeah. Well, good for you, Angie. Yeah, she's providing the people with what they need. There you go. Which is weed. Hey, that'd be a great slogan for a weed shop. <laughs> oh, boy. It would be, though. Next, we have Cricket. <laughs> yep. Cricket. Where's Cricket from? The grass. <laughs> her backyard. It's yeah. From your backyard. <laughs> from our backyard. Okay. And well, thank you, Cricket. And Cricket for living um, annoys us. 
annoys us and eats bugs. Yeah. It's other bugs. No, the bug part is good, but it's- And grasses. I think actually they don't eat, eat bugs. They do eat grass, don't they? I don't know. I need to brush up on my cricket You knowledge. really do. I, I always say that about you. Or is she a cricket player? No. Or is he a cricket player? No, neither. Or are they a cricket player? I don't know. No, just, no, I told you. Angela. You don't have to put on the No, way. it's Angela Geist, and she's from New Braunfels, Texas. Oh, I thought you were going to go with New Brunswick for a minute. No, eh? close. Not oh. really. Well, thank you. Cody McLaughlin from Brampton, Ontario. Right. Oh, thank you, Cody. Brampton. I have a friend in Brampton. Do you? He's going to be in Orlando at the same time we are. Sweet. Patricia Stranod. She's from Burlington, Ontario. Hey, right on. Wait, so we cover some more Ontario here. Ontarians. Be Ontarios. Cindy Schroeders. I don't know where she's from. Oh, Cindy Schroeders. Yep. Yeah. Uh, from the Schroeder clan. Okay. Is she like the piano playing Schroeder from uh, uh, the Charlie Brown show? No, no. no uh, more the Schroeder clan from, uh, oh, I forget his name. He was on that TV show where he was a- uh, Rick, Ricky Schroeder? Ricky Schroeder. Oh, like Silver Spoons. Yeah, Silver Spoons Schroeder. Uh, Ricky, from, Ricky Schroeder's sister? From that clan. No, no, a distant- uh, Well, hers is Schroeder's. Yeah, well, that's- just Schroeder. That's how distant they've added an S. They added- So <laughs> distant. So they got so far away, yeah, they added an the S. Mid plural, uh, and, uh, from uh, where all the Schroeders are from. Well, where? Johannesburg. Okay, and what does she Africa. do in Joburg? In, is, that what, is that what the kids they are call calling it, it now? They call it Joburg, yeah. Do they? Yes. Wow, okay. Our friends from Johannesburg call yeah. it Joburg. Wow, okay. I, yeah. I've never heard that. She, I wasn't being shitty. I was like an actual thing. Well, uh, well. Uh, okay. what Cindy does, mm-hmm. I was going to say Cody, what Cindy does in Joburg mm-hmm. is um, high-rise window cleaner. Well, good for her. No, that's a pretty cool job. I always kind of wanted to do that. Good for Cindy. Yeah, good Good job, Cindy. Well, the, uh, she's allowing y'all to see clearly. Uh, next up, we have Mark Braybrook. And he is from Surrey, British Columbia. I know a Mark from Surrey. I know a couple. Could it be? I don't think. Could it be? I don't know. Thank you, Mark. And last up, Alice Candy. Any relation to John? Holy shit, now I want candy. You always want candy. That is true. That is true. I think she works in Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. And you, she's the great class elevator driver. So you do know her. I do. Wow. Yeah. Yep. It's it's the most coveted job in the factory. Yep. The yeah. great class elevator. Yeah. Is it that because that thing goes bonkers? It's man. yeah. It goes sideways. Yeah. Everybody wants that job. So have you she, ever read those books? Uh, oh right. Books. You Forgot. lost me at yeah, books. Sorry. Have I ever watched the movies? Absolutely. Like. <laughs> Absolutely. I love Charlie and the Great Glass Elevator, the yeah. second one. Oh, was there, was, very... there was a second one? Yeah. Oh, there was shit. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and then Charlie and the Great Glass Elevator. Wow. Oh, plot twist. Wow. Yeah. Roald Dahl is quite a writer. Hmm. Uh, here we have uh, some PayPal donut money. <laughs> Hello, Mike and Scott. I've been a fan of your amazing show for a long time. I wanted to send a little extra donut money over Christmas. I've recently oh. had surgery oh. and you boys made my recovery so much better. Sitting up. To sleep is not nice, but being able to listen to you truly helps me get by. Thank you for all that you do. 
You are appreciated beyond words. Many blessings to you and your families. Terry Temlet from Maple Ridge. Thank you, Terry. Oh, close by. Oh, Terry, sorry, sorry to hear about the surgery. Well, I guess she's better now. Yeah, but having to uh, sit, did she say sit up to sleep? Yeah. God, that would be challenging. Yeah, that doesn't sound like fun. No. And here's one from Christine Cassis. Thank you guys for a wonderful podcast. You make my Monday at work more enjoyable. Sorry, it wasn't this Monday. <laughs> I wish... <laughs> I want to wish you guys a happy holiday season. I hope you guys continue to do what you do for many years to come. Keep up the good work. My Mondays depend on your podcast. No pressure. <laughs> so the but, one past, I guess we uh, messed up. Well, we didn't really mess up. I needed a break. Yeah, we needed. Uh, you needed a week off. I was going crazy. It's the holidays. Take a week. Uh, oh, here we have one from Jillian Bergman. Hi, Mike. I called the other week promising cash for a sweet treat, and here I am keeping that promise. Oh, oh well, that's nice. Please enjoy a donut or donut Nanaimo bar on me. Thank you, as always, for making such a thoughtful and well-written and often funny show. It's been wonderful to hear how the show has grown over the years, and it helped me get through many long days at work. I think people should be working at work, should they not? Screw that noise. Yeah. I'm... I'm not your supervisor, so I don't have to worry about it. I look forward to many more episodes in the new year. Happy holidays and tell Scott to guess what I do. Hint, something with mushrooms, fungi. Cheers, Jillian from Corvallis, Oregon. So, oh, yeah. oh, shit. Don't tell me she's a mushroom farmer. She's probably a mushroom farmer. Oh, God. Yeah. Sounds like a terrible job. Yeah. Terrible job. Did I ever tell you that one of my mom's exes? It's mean, Jillian from the earlier in the show. Oh, <laughs> Corvallis, Scott. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Scott doesn't pay attention, Jillian. Why would I, I do. Why would I start now? <laughs> right? But seriously, my mom's ex used to grow. He, he was a mushroom farmer. He had mushrooms. Maybe that's why you hate mushrooms It's so quite much. possible. When you, yeah. The oyster mushrooms specifically. He grew. Hmm. Yeah, I wanted Weird. I wanted to punch them all. Here's some from uh, Dakota Harrington. Here's $10 to Annex Vermont. I hope that you choose to do so, sending lots of love from Vermont, Dakota. I don't want to get political or anything like that, but uh, I'm not going to read any further into that post. Huh? Oh, I must have. She wants to annex. Oh, oh, oh. She wants Canada annex. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. We will do it. Right? Oh, here we have Lisa Blesky oh. sent us some money. Merry, happy, everything to you, Mike and Scott. Thank you for being, thank you for bringing such genuine compassion, insight, and humor into each episode. Big Christmas hugs to you both. Oh, thank you, Lisa. Super kind. Yes. Thank super, you very much. Super kind. Thank you so much to our patrons, past and present, everybody who uh, called us on our line, one 877 or one eight seven seven D A R K P T N. Putin. Putin. Yeah. Pa our PayPal folks, our Interact folks, all of you, we love you so much. People who threw gave me money at the live show. <laughs> we went to Denny's. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you want to help support this, you can do so at patreon.com slash dark poutine. Or for a one time support, you can send us some donut money via PayPal at our email, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already, it would mean a lot to us if you subscribe to the show. You can easily find us on iTunes, Podcast, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, or wherever you get your on-demand audio. 
Check out darkpoutine.com for show notes and other cool stuff. Give us a like or follow on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Come to the Yumber Yard, darn it. Get in there. Most importantly, tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. So until next week, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye-bye, everybody. Guten Tag. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye